Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We will begin in a little bit in verse 18. As you turn, I think I can take a minute and just acknowledge that this is a strange time to be alive. Uh, I am not happy with things. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think I'm allowed to be unhappy with the way things are right now. Uh, Not unhappy with Jesus and not unhappy with what he has provided and the joy that I have in him, but we are allowed to be unhappy when people are sick and things are in chaos. We are allowed to acknowledge, at least, that it is not good, the situation that we find ourselves in. It's not good that we're missing two-thirds of the people here. It's not good that some of them are sick. It's not good that things are strained. So it's okay to not be thrilled with the way things are right now, but it is not okay to despair or to be overcome by fear. Uh, It's not okay to let our difficulties in life become an impediment to who we are in Christ and to what we're supposed to be gathered together to do, but man, it is tough. When I, I don't know if you still read the newspaper, I don't read the newspaper, uh, I don't know if you get your news from the internet. I get that's where I get my news from the internet. Steve told me this week he got his news from television channels, and I thought that is so outdated, Steve. That I just picture Steve going home every night to watch a television channel, and it brings you know a sense of sadness to me just seeing there. But anyway, I get <laughs> I get my he is old. I get my news from uh, from the internet, and every day when I check the internet and I see the front page. It is article after article after article on the coronavirus over and over and over again. Uh, My mom stopped checking the news about 25 years ago. She told me she didn't want to be depressed. And I thought, Mom, that is just so stick your head into the sand, you know, mentality. That's not healthy. And now I admire her for her great wisdom. Uh, and she, she might listen to this and she'll be encouraged to hear that. I'll get a text about that probably this week. When I turn on the radio, they are talking about the coronavirus. And I only listen to sports radio. That is all I listen to. I specifically avoid radio that's supposed to be talking about anything serious at all. If there were sports to turn on in the evening, and there aren't, they would be talking about the coronavirus. It is all-consuming right now. And, you know, I'll just sidebar and say that if you get a hint of how all-consuming it is when thousands have died, imagine what the great judgment of God in the book of Revelation will do to the condition and panic and fear of the people in the world. It is not an exaggeration that the kings of the earth will say to themselves, let the mountains fall on us as millions of people suffer, because the kings of this earth will be unable to do anything about it. And that is why we should pray for our leaders, even the ones who are making decisions right now that we may or may not disagree with, because it is not an easy time to be a leader. They cannot stop viruses. They can slow them down and invest millions of dollars or lose millions of dollars. They can make all sorts of decisions But there are things outside the control of leaders and authorities. And were we getting to chapter 2 in 1 Timothy today, we would see that we are to be praying for those kings and authorities. And that is Paul's testimony to Timothy, even when the king of his day was Nero, who hated Christians and burned them at the stake. He said we should be praying. He desires that all men everywhere should be lifting up their hands and praying. That's not where we're at this morning. I have to say, there is one glimmer of happiness consistently in the last two weeks that I have enjoyed. And those are Saturdays. I really like Saturdays all of a sudden. Uh, I, I do not have to go to work. I can stay at home. In fact, I'm ordered to stay at home. No one is allowed to go do anything else, really. I mean, kind of, but not really. It's just this weird... It's a rule, but it's not a rule situation that we're all in. So I stay at home, and my children aren't allowed to leave, and my wife is not supposed to leave, and I'm not supposed to leave, and we're just stuck there with each other. And no one talks about the coronavirus all day. It's just a nice day of total rest from all that stuff. And it's so nice not to hear or have to think about it or have to make my work schedule around it or deal with leadership tasks at work that involve it. Now, the author of Hebrews 
in chapter 3 and 4 of Hebrews takes the time to explain that for Christians, uh, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. So I enjoy the rest of Saturday right now, but for Christians, there is a deeper rest found and fulfilled in Jesus. That is Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. And the rest that I feel so practically now on Saturdays is offered to me in another sense through faith in Jesus Christ. If I trust in His promises, if I trust in His promises of life and eternal peace with God in heaven, of a righteousness that doesn't depend on me or my careful keeping of the law, then I can have the same spiritual rest all of the time that I enjoy physically on Saturdays for the last couple of weeks. And what's even more important, I am moving closer and closer to the day when I will see Jesus and be with the Lord. And I will enter His kingdom. And I will not go into His kingdom with this body and in this condition. I will not go on with this corruptible form, but as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the corruptible will put on the incorruptible, and the mortal will put on immortality. So we will all be changed. That is amazing. But, you know, Hebrews 4, where all this talk about the Sabbath rest of Jesus, has a a warning in verse 11. Uh, The warning in verse 11, the whole section about the Sabbath rest of the Christians in chapter 3 and 4, the warning in verse 11 says this, Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall in accordance with that same example of disobedience. Now, the same example of disobedience is the passage that he quotes twice in Hebrews chapter 4. It's Psalm 95.10. Psalm 95.10, we hear the word of God say this. Psalms in the Old Testament. This is what God says. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation. Some of you already know what he's talking about, right? Think about that. Forty years in the Old Testament. Forty years long, Psalm 95.10, was I grieved with this generation and said... It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter my rest. That's the word of the Lord, Psalm 95.10. Forty years is a long time uh, to wait for something. Uh, When a judge in a courtroom issues a verdict against a particularly heinous crime, and a criminal is found guilty, uh, one of the deepest sentences that he can render to them is the sentence of 40 to life. It's become a phrase, 40 to life, 40 to life. Meaning, that person will wait in jail 40 years or up to the rest of their life. Can you imagine serving a sentence of 40 years? 40 years, day after day, turning into week after week, month after month, in the same place, waiting for a release, waiting for a rest, waiting for an escape, waiting for a deliverance. Forty years, the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness outside of Egypt, waiting to go into the promised land. Forty years they wandered there, and yet the whole generation of them that began the time did not enter into God's rest. Forty years they wandered and waited, and they did not go in. So the Lord has sworn in His wrath in Psalm 95.10, I swear they will not enter my rest. This is the example of disobedience in Hebrews 4.11, where we are warned. Again, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience as the children of Israel, who did not cross the Jordan and did not make it out of the 40-year sentence, who wasted away in a desert for 40 years, waiting for a rest that would not come to them. Do you want true rest from this world and from the coronavirus and from floods and fires? 
from sickness and disease and from financial strain, from fret, from personal failures and letdowns and criticisms. Do you want rest from people stabbing you in the back and talking about you behind your back and leaving you out in the cold and setting you aside and dismissing you? Do you want rest from injustice and from misfortune and from shame that is sometimes not justified as well as shame that often is? Hear the words of Jesus. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You will find rest for your soul. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, says the Lord Jesus. Take my burden on your back. Make my life's work your life's work. That's what a yoke is, right? If you take a yoke and you put it on a pair of oxen, what's the farmer doing? He's taking his work and applying it to these two animals. Here is Jesus, take my life's work, my commission, take my will upon you. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. All of these people in the world around us who are not followers of Jesus Christ have all sorts of burdens on their own back. Some of them burdens of conscience, some of them burdens of labor, some of them just plain burdens of working in futility all the days of their life without ever accomplishing anything, without rest, living in a world of chaos, living in their own wilderness and exile, and there is no rest coming. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and you will find rest for your souls. What does that tell us? True rest belongs to the Christian. True rest is yours. I don't know if you feel that. I don't know if you experience that. I, I don't know if that provides you any practical help in your day-to-day -day life, but it, sh it should. But, Hebrews 4.11, be diligent, be careful, keep watch, lest anyone fall, and spend their lifetime, and spend their 40 years waiting for something that will not come to them. Now, this is one of the most important roles of a pastor, and we are in 1 Timothy, trying to understand the pastoral epistles. And if you're not a pastor, and if you've never contemplated becoming a pastor, it's very likely that you have not spent a lot of time meditating on this. One of the most important roles of a pastor is to try to keep watch over the soul's of the Christian people entrusted to them by God. The word pastor just means shepherd. That's all it means. And like the good shepherd Jesus, pastors are shepherds underneath the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes they used to be called under shepherds as an acknowledgement of the fact that Jesus is the great shepherd and yet he has commissioned men to be shepherds under him and to care for the flock that represents all of his people. And like Moses, a shepherd himself for 40 years, that was Moses' training. Learned to keep watch over actual sheep in the wilderness and in the desert. So too he kept watch over the children of Israel for 40 years as they wandered in God's judgment. Moses with him. Spent all that time he watched the generation that was under judgment, that was dying in the wilderness. I don't know what their funeral services were like. He watched them die out over four decades, and he watched the new generation being born and growing old who would walk across the Jordan and go into the promised land. He saw the generation 
that would be the example of disobedience who would not go into their rest and he watched over the generation that would go into the rest. There are those in the church and local congregation who will not enter into the rest. There are those in local congregations and assemblies who have been baptized, who have gotten in the water and made a profession of faith, who will not see the kingdom of God. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't I do great works and didn't I do good things? And Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. This is why in Hebrews 4.11 we have the warning, be diligent, lest you fall. There are those who after wandering in the wilderness of this world will see Jesus face to face and will know the glory of his kingdom. And that is the joy. The pastor will watch as those sheep enter into the rest and be satisfied. But there are those who will not make it. And that is agony. Now, I don't have a scanner or a radar gun to point at the souls of people. And to know which ones have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Who are Christ and who can never be plucked out of his hand. And those who have simply made a surface level profession of faith. Here's the promise of the Holy Spirit. That he seals us. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. If the spirit of God is alive and living and active in your heart. You have the promise of eternal life that can never be stripped from your hand. And yet I have seen with my own eyes and so have you. The practical example of people who say I am a Christian. And I have my faith in God. And who walk away and make shipwreck of their faith and deny the Lord and deny Jesus' work on the cross and deny his place at the right hand of God for all eternity. I have seen both. And in the real time right now, how am I to decipher who is who? I can't. Which is why the pastor has the role, the responsibility of keeping watch over the souls of the people. Now, think about that. If I knew that everyone in our entire congregation were 100% in great shape and had the guarantee of the Holy Spirit written on their hearts and nothing would ever pluck them out of the hand of the Lord Jesus because their faith is real and saving and genuine, if I knew that, I would not really have to keep all that great watch over anybody's soul. I mean, I would want to make sure we were still living right and doing the right things, and I would have other responsibilities, but implied in that command to keep watch over the soul of God's people is the idea that not all who are of the flock are truly of the flock. And it is difficult to keep watch over the souls of people. It is the most agonizing thing. You know, just take a minute here and give you a practical example of it. Uh, sometimes, as a pastor, uh, I will see things that concern me. And uh, like, for instance, maybe someone has, has, was going to a Bible study faithfully and they stopped going to the Bible study. And, and I, you might be concerned. And you know, might be a really legitimate reason for that person not going to the Bible study faithfully anymore. You know that. And you're working through in your heart the, the question of how to address something like this. And, and you, you're, you're considering it. But in the back of your mind, you're wondering, what is my role here? What should I say? What should I do? There have been countless examples of things like that. Someone is listening to music that is disturbing. And you wonder, are they processing what they're doing here? Someone is watching a TV show or a, a television series that is, that is clearly just not light of the world material. You wonder, what is my role here? And, and you, you, you do this carefully because the last thing you want to do is go around making rules and regulations for all the people. You have to do it my way and you have to do it this way or else you're sinning and you're, and you're, you're doing something evil. That's the last thing a Christian wants to do. 
We understand that the gospel frees us from the commands of the law. And yet we are told to keep watch over the souls of God's people because we are wayward individuals. And I've gone and I've talked to people before. And you know, sometimes people will look at me and they'll say, Hey, pastor, don't worry about me. And I'm not sure they understand what they're really saying. When a pastor comes and tries to talk with you after he's thought about it and processed and it's not some off-the-cuff remark, but they've thought and they, they, they have a concern for you. This is their calling in the church and this is their role among you and they have a concern and they say, hey, I've noticed that this, whatever it is. And to be dismissive of that and simply say, ah, you know, don't worry about me. Everything's fine. I don't think that when you say that, you realize what you're actually communicating is, you don't need to keep so close a watch on my soul, I'm okay. We need to understand the function of what a pastor is supposed to do, keeping watch over the soul of the people that are commissioned to him. And if you don't like that, then you don't want a real pastor. You realize that? You cannot say, this person is my pastor, realizing that means shepherd under the Lord Jesus Christ. But I do not want this person's opinion about what's going on in my life. I do not want this person's viewpoint of the spiritual condition that I'm in. I do not want this person's insight. He does not need to pay attention to me. He does not need to keep an eye on me. In fact, I would prefer if he would go about his business and not pay that close of attention to what I'm doing at all. That person can stay out of my home. And that person can stay away from my children. Why? It's not his role. Stand up, teach the Bible, pray, oversee things that are going on at the church property. But don't oversee anything that's going on. Don't pay attention to anything that's going on in the life of the church people. Think about that. Or has the Lord commissioned shepherds for no purpose? Maybe they're not supposed to do anything. Maybe our hearts never need shepherded. Maybe they're not supposed to be paying attention to what's happening in my life. You know, I think the Bible clearly teaches that we are. Realize, Christian, what you're saying. When you tell a pastor, don't pay attention. Don't worry about me. Now, a pastor is not supposed to worry in the sense of losing faithfulness in who God is. But if we say the word worry and what we mean is have concern for you, that is the function. That is the role. Which brings us now to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. Again, this is Paul writing... To a pastor. We'll see three things here, but first let's read the three verses 18, 19, and 20. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So that's our text this morning. We won't be a very long time in it. We're going to go through three points, and we're going to go through them rapidly. Uh, we're not going to spend time talking about the prophecies concerning Timothy, because we don't have them, so I don't have much to say. Nor are we going to spend a great deal of time talking about Hymenaeus and Alexander, because I don't know the details of their situation. But what I can teach you, I will. Number one, notice the charge there. The charge that he commits to him is what? Can you find it in the verse? Wage the good warfare. Wage the good warfare. Pastoral work is war. War. Here is Peter, for Mary, the death 5, verses 8 and 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, stand against him. 
Stand fast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. This is spiritual warfare with an enemy. Spiritual warfare is not exorcism and all that nonsense drama that shows up on movies and and in caricatures of this kind of business. That's not spiritual warfare. And Satan can't be defeated by flashing around symbols and crosses and magic utensils and and holy artifacts. And that's all nonsense. Spiritual warfare is keeping watch over the souls of God's people, standing up to the attacks of an enemy who would strike at the weakness of who we are as people to make the things which God has forbidden seem beautiful. That's what Satan does. He pleads to your natural inclinations. And he would draw you into a life which God has condemned, draw you out of faithfulness, draw you out of righteousness, draw you out of selfless sacrificial service, and into a life of worldliness by making it look appealing and beautiful. Is that not what he did with Eve? He took what was forbidden and he made it seem beautiful. This week, uh, there was a bunch of celebrities who got together to make their own beautiful statement against the coronavirus. And you know what they did? They cut up a song and they sang bits and pieces of it on the internet. And, and, and each person sang one line and then another celebrity would sing the next line. Another celebrity would sing the next, the next line until the song was complete. I didn't listen to it. I didn't want to. I didn't have to. Number one, celebrities are not my pastors. It is not their job to shepherd my soul. I don't need their voice in this crisis. It says something about them, though, that they think I do. It says something about the world that our leaders are not content to make laws to keep us safe and execute judgment to keep us safe, but they think we need moral guidance from them, spiritual help from them. They are not to be the pastors of God's people. Do not give the place in your life that belongs to the people who sacrificially serve you in the church, commissioned by the Lord. Do not give that place to the artists. It doesn't belong to them. You need to be encouraged and uplifted Don't go to the world. Here's the song. Here's the lyrics. Are you ready? Here is their great encouragement. Elton John's Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. We could pull this satanic message right out of the book of Revelation. Imagine no possessions, sings the man with an $800 million estate. Sings the celebrities who negotiate for every dime in their contract. Lies. Don't make these people your pastors. They don't serve you. You serve them. Don't give what belongs to the men in this church who for the most part without pay and some with meager pay lay down their lives faithfully, give up their Saturdays, their Wednesdays, their Tuesdays, their everydays, their Sundays to lead and to love who wake up in the morning and get on their hands and knees and pray for you when you haven't thought about them in a week. Don't give the place that belongs to them to these people. The world wants to take what's forbidden and make it look beautiful. What Jesus did on the cross is beautiful. What God did by giving his only son to save you from the hell they want to imagine doesn't exist. And bring you into the heaven that they'd like to think isn't there. That's beautiful. The picture of Jesus on the cross, arms outstretched. Legions of angels ready to intervene. One word. 
one word away from being brought down upon the scene at the cross and wiping out all of God's enemies, restrained only by the love of God in Christ, who would suffer in our place to save the very people who are watching, as he says, audibly enough to be heard by John, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Imagine that. That is beautiful. Not this. Now you say, how is 1 Timothy chapter 1, 18 through 20 about that kind of spiritual warfare? Turn to 2 Corinthians. Chapter 10, we will just read the first six verses. Here is Paul fighting this spiritual warfare. Here is Paul fulfilling this charge to the church in Corinth. Here's Paul being a pastor to them. It's not fun. Here's... 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you. That's himself. I'm not that impressive to look at. But being absent, I'm bold to you. But I beg you that when I present myself, I may not be bold, and that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we have walked according to the flesh because his enemies are coming into this church in Corinth in his absence and saying, Paul's only in it for his own gain. That money grubber Paul's trying to make a name for himself. And he's lowly and he's not nearly as enlightened as we are and we can tell you the truth. He says, listen to me now so I don't have to be bold or harsh with you in person. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, that's what I just did. Pulled, pulled down a stronghold, gave my best effort to the celebrities and their anthem this week. That's spiritual warfare. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Verse 5. Casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It's my job. Pull down the strongholds. That's what they're doing. They're building up this beautiful, idolatrous image. Look at this. Watch this. Take your instruction from this. Feel this way. Think this way. Come along with us. Paul rips it down. Spiritual warfare by casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. It's the work of a pastor. Do not tell your pastor to not worry about you and that everything's fine and just dismiss his concern because you don't want to think about it or deal with it. Don't do that. You should be inviting the pastor into your life. This man loves you and cares if he says, even if he's terrible naturally at showing it, even if he's not the most lovey-dovey person, even if he says things that aren't comfortable and he's awkward and he looks weird, and he's not as polished as other guys, and he's not the great pastor you grew up with, and he's not like the kind demeanor that you're used to, this person cares for you. If he's a pastor who's qualified, and we'll get there, but if he's a pastor who's qualified, he's not getting paid great big bucks to do this. He's not heaping up for himself some big reward of self-esteem to do this. You think it's easy to get up here and cry in front of you? It's not. You should be inviting him into your life. Why? Because there's a war to be waged. 
So yeah, 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20 is about stupid songs. It's about movies. It's about the music in your car. It's about what you do and who you listen to. Now, that's point one. Wage the good warfare. Here's two. You notice it says, having faith and a good conscience, so not to be shipwrecked. Now, this is Paul telling Timothy, how are you going to do this, Timothy? You got to have faith. You got to keep the faith. You got to believe. Keep the faith and have a good conscience, integrity, character, so as not so as not to suffer shipwreck. Now, you know, that's an interesting phrase. You know, there's a few points I'd like to make really briefly about shipwrecks. Number one, shipwrecks are total losses, especially in the ancient world. Shipwrecks are total losses. It's not just a setback, it's losing everything. Maybe a setback for the company that owned the ship. It is a total loss for everything that was on the ship. Shipwrecks are total losses. This is the most severe of warnings. It's the same as Hebrew 4.11, only now applied to the heart of a pastor. The pastor has to be careful so that he doesn't suffer shipwreck of his own life, of his own faith. Second point I'll make about shipwrecks, they're not premeditated. No one plans for a shipwreck. No one says, hey, you know what? Let's run this boat into the ground. Let's hit the rocks underneath the water and let's just see what happens. They're not planned. They are sudden, unexpected catastrophes. Number three, third point I make about shipwrecks. Shipwrecks happen when you are off course. You know, boats don't just flip over. Not boats that are well made. You know, you want to get a lesson on this, talk to Ryan Toms. You're not here this morning, but you talk to Ryan Toms. Or go on the internet and you watch the amount of force it would take to just flip a boat over. You know, when... My wife is always afraid to be out in the middle of the water on a boat. You know, she's told me several times she's not going to go on a cruise, and this virus has not helped my cause. It'll, I'll never get her on a cruise in the rest of our life. But she is concerned about being out in the middle of the ocean on a boat, and I try to tell her you ought to be more concerned about being near the shore in a boat. Shipwrecks happen when people are off course, and they end up on the rocks that they didn't know were there. Christians have to be careful of shipwrecks. Pastors especially have to be careful of shipwrecks. Why? Because there is a skepticism in our world that attacks our fundamental beliefs in the Lord Jesus Christ at every turn. There is a sense of failure that even the great heroes of the Bible had to deal with and live through because if you serve the Lord faithfully, odds are, in, in all likelihood, you will not be commended as a successful person. Jesus was not viewed as a success. Moses was not viewed as a success. Elijah was not viewed as a success. Elijah never saw the reform and repentance among God's people that he spent his whole ministry trying to achieve. Moses did not make it into the promised land after he got those people out of Egypt. He spent 40 years in the wilderness and died. Jesus was crucified on a cross and one of the sports radio shows I listened to two weeks ago called him a failed Messiah on national radio. He's not viewed as a success. That made me mad. Disappointments and frustrations of doing your very best to see things work out the way that you believe God. Ambition falls apart. Ambition takes the place of boredom where we get restless with God using us in the way that we hoped He would use us and we become ambitious for other plans and other goals. All of these things threaten a pastor at the point of faith and at the point of character, integrity, a good conscience. Jesus would give us a Sabbath rest from all of these dangers. He died on the cross to give us freedom from all of these pressures and burdens for success, burdens for achievement, burdens for not being viewed as a failure, burdens of skepticism. He died on the cross to free us. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. When Moses and Elijah, both failures on the earth, stand before the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration, they see in the glorified version of Jesus Christ, the culmination of all that they had invested their life in.
They had to die to see it. So will you. So will pastors. Because if you just lift up your eyes and look around, it won't look like a big success most of the time. I'll say that there's a particular danger here for a whole lot of churches. Because oftentimes, the men who end up, and I'll say women who end up being pastors in churches, are people who are most naturally gifted leaders. And so they end up in these positions of leadership, not because they're called, not because they have the heart for it, not because they have the background for it, not because they have the dedication to it. They are called because they have natural inclinations towards leadership. Here's the problem. People with natural inclinations towards leadership are used to, be able, to being able to lead successfully. And if you have a natural inclination towards leadership, one of the most immediate burdens you're going to find if you try to pastor rightly is you cannot achieve success by almost any metric. And you know why that's so dangerous? Because then these people with these natural personas of leadership who have the perfect voice that I don't have, the big baritone and the, and the full head of hair and who are just used to walking into any room and taking command of the presence and, and taking their commanding presence and, and persuading the group and leading the group into success and achievement when they find they can't do that the Bible's way, guess what they do? This warning about a good conscience and a right faith starts to drift away and be replaced by a compromised faith, new goals, new agendas, new teaching, and a compromised character because they need to achieve their ends. They need to succeed. Point number one, there's the charge. Wage the good warfare. Point number two, with a faith and a good conscience, don't be shipwrecked. And point number three here, last one. Notice it says, two examples of the shipwrecked in verse 20. Some have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Church discipline. You do not have to read many letters from Paul to find church discipline. Matter of fact, most people believe 1st and 2nd Corinthians are the earliest letters of Paul. They are filled with church discipline. It is the pastor's job to deal with false teaching and sin in the church. Now, the congregation has to deal with it too, but it is the pastor's job to lead out in that. And it is hard. Jesus speaks of church discipline. Matthew chapter 18 Verses 15 through 20. You can turn there and read it for yourself. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. If he will not listen, take one with you and go and tell him his fault. If they will not listen, go and tell it to the church. If they will not listen, then do not even eat with such a one. Cast that person out. Church discipline. Why? Because we don't love that person? Because we're not compassionate? No, because unrepentant sin cannot take place among God's people without a corrupting influence. And again, it is the pastor's job to keep watch over the soul. You cannot keep watch over the soul of this person effectively when it comes to something like sexual morality if the person beside them is in blatant sexual immoral behavior and no one says anything or does anything about it. The person next to that person sees the sin here and it has an impact. And the child over here sees the sin here and it has an impact. And on and on and on. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Here, let me read it to you. You could turn there if you want. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to this. This is Paul, first earliest letter. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and pretend that you're spiritually accomplished. 
Should you not rather have mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you? For I indeed, as absent in the body but present in the spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, for that that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now that is bounced up against 1 Timothy chapter 1, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. You see the commonality in the language? What does it mean to deliver to Satan? It means you take the one who is living as if they belong to the world and the devil, and you take them out of God's people, and you deliver them to the world that they say they belong to by their actions and conduct. And you deliver them over to the world, which their conduct demonstrates they belong to, in hopes that they will see the error of their ways and come to repentance and might be saved in the day of judgment. Delivering unto Satan means we're not going to deliver unto Jesus every, wor- every worship day and every fellowship day and every assembly day. We're not going to deliver unto the body of Christ that which belongs to Satan. We're going to throw them out into the world where they belong. Because as long as unrepentant sin is allowed to take place inside the church, their conscience will not be pierced by the gospel that convicts them. As long as we keep affirming that their relationship with God is fine and there's no issue with their relationship with God and it doesn't matter if they don't do what God says. It doesn't matter if they do whatever they want. So long as we continue to look that person in the face and tell them because we're too big of a coward to say anything different, everything's fine and everything will be okay and God understands that person doesn't realize they truly belong to Satan and are headed to hell. But the moment you tell that person what you're doing is wrong and it's got to change, and they say, no, I'm not going to change. And you take a friend and you go to him and you say, look, we're telling you what you're doing is wrong and it's got to change. And they say, no, I'm not going to change. And you tell the church, we've got we've to talk to this person, we've got we've to pray for this person, we've got to, and they tell the church, no, I'm not going to change. And you say, oh, fine, we are not going to say you belong in the body of Christ. You are outside. That's what discipline does. Is it fun? It's not fun. None of this stuff is fun. It's not fun to go you and tell go to you and tell you, hey, I'm really concerned because I see this in your life. Or hey, I had a question about this. Or hey, can you explain to me this? None of this is fun. You don't become a pastor because it sounds like a good career option. It's not. You don't do this because you want to have a big social media following or you want to have a congregation of thousands and you want everybody to give you appreciation cards. It doesn't happen. You do this because you love God and you love God's people. You love God's people enough to tell them this is sin and we can't allow it to take place. And in the case of Hymenaeus and Alexander, they're probably, in the context of the letter, false teachers, which means it's not just about conduct for the pastor, but the pastor also has to deal with when someone embraces a false teacher. And you know, let me say this. I'll wrap up. There is perhaps nothing more uncomfortable for me that I have experienced than trying to go and have a conversation with someone who has found a new personality on the radio or on the internet or on some video or in some book that they really like and they really like this person's message. And I have to go to that person, I have to say, do you know this person is a false teacher saying wrong things about God and saying wrong things about the gospel? Because you know what has never happened? Them looking at me and saying, Oh, no problem. I'll put all that aside now. Thank you. That's never what happens. What always happens, by almost human default, is a defense of the individual. That always happens. Because the person who obviously is, and that's human, the person who has latched on to this false teacher has done so for good motivations from their perspective, not bad motivations. And so they are defending their motivations, they are defending their character, and in the process of doing that, they end up taking up the cause of this person, the false teacher. Paul had to deal with false teachers, and he tells Timothy, I'm charging you, beginning of chapter 1, do not let anyone teach something that's wrong. There is no other gospel. Don't let them teach what's wrong. And let me tell you, if you just want to stop and imagine Timothy, who wasn't in Ephesus, Paul left him there. 
He wasn't, he, you know, he, it's not like he was happening. He, he was the big police officer pastor left by Paul to keep things in order. And Timothy, the start of his ministry is what? Well, the apostle Paul showed up and he kicked a bunch of people out of the church and he left Timothy in charge of everything. And then he left Timothy and went away. Preach a sermon every week in that context. From which people look at like why it is right now, but without the smile. You know, arms crossed. This guy's our big overseer. He's going to tell Paul if we do something wrong. Who does he think he is? Being a pastor is no easy task. But you know what? The Lord is a shepherd. And he's given you shepherds. And you need to understand their role. And when you see them trying to perform their role, what you really need to see is not a man clumsily trying to do a task that he is poorly equipped to do. In the long run, I am not well equipped to go change your mind or heart about something. Okay? Don't see that. See the beauty of Jesus Christ who didn't leave people here on this world without individuals gifted and called to serve them. Imagine that that is pretty. And imagine that that is beautiful. And imagine that that is important. And maybe we'll think of it rightly. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, all of these things are challenging. They're challenging to consider. They're challenging to interpret rightly. And they're difficult to, to accept. There's no doubt about that. And I am no perfect pastor. Father, I pray for all of our pastors here that you'll help us to operate with a good conscience. It's hard to know that I'm a sinner and to know that I still have a responsibility here despite my own sin. Help us to be the most humble of people. The ones who can take criticism and barbs. And Father, help our people to understand that no matter how clumsy or awkward or backward we may, not, we may be and for all of our very human faults, that they are loved and cared for by Jesus through our ministry. And that's the goal. Father, give pastors and people here a right relationship. A relationship of peace and trust for as much as we can trust any man. No relationship, no trust like this is truly deserved. But Father, please by faith help us to trust you and your provision in our lives by the pastors that you've given us. I thank you for the pastors that you've given me. Thank you for Justin and Nathan and Steve and their careful watch over my own soul. And I pray, Father, that you will bless them. I pray, Father, that you'll give them strength and courage. I thank you for the heart of tenderness and humility that they exhibit. Grow us in your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.